Talking Theater with Sir Holworth Felix Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. Straight ahead. Turn right. Take the next left. Right again. Continue. Make your way around. Bear right again. Down the hill. Past the gibbons. Now turn left. I said left. No, left. Left. Go left. You've missed it. No, it's fine. We'll take the next junction. I said it's fine. Right. Now bear left again. And now right. Right again. You have reached your destination. Good day. My name is Sir with Felix to Smooth, and contrary to popular belief, I do support the global effort to address climate change. I simply believe that hippies should stop gluing themselves to tube trains that I need to get. Some of us have appointments at the rich, you know, and one mustn't keep Imelda Staunton waiting. Seriously, she'll take your face off. I once saw Rupert Grint, famous for playing the ginger one on Harry Potter, forget to pull her chair out for her at the Savoy after seeing her in Gypsy. He apologised, and she acted as if it hardly mattered. Then, an hour into dinner, she stood up silently, took her shoe off, and without thinking, embedded her stiletto into his cheek. Blood everywhere. Looked like a ketchup sprinkler, he did. (laughs) Whizzing around. Imelda just laughed. I was worried I'd get the other stiletto, so I laughed as well. She really is a danger. Anyway, we digress. Yes, I'm the host of uh, this podcast, (laughs) Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. And I bet some of you out there are wondering what the hell old Holworth was going on about in the introduction. Well, I was giving a citation from the journey history of my dear friend, Mrs. Satnav, because this week is all about direction. (laughs) Forgive me, forgive me. It's a trite joke, I know, and I told Sean as much, but um, he insisted I start with it, and I can't be bothered arguing when he's having one of his OCD moments, shall we say. Talking of the sat-nav and directions, that's reminded me about something that happened the other day. Um, I hope you don't mind me telling you. I feel as though I must. I hope you don't indulge me. Uh, Sean and I decided, basically, that we would have a bite to eat um, and would try this new restaurant down the road, which just opened. It's part of a large chain. Uh, It's called McDonald's. Um, And I told Sean he must use the sat-nav but he insisted that he knew the way. Uh, Nevertheless, I insisted on the sat-nav, as, to be honest, it had been a while since we used it, and I missed her voice. Other than Holly Willoughby in the mornings and Tess Daly on Saturday evenings, I don't have many women in my life, so I find the soothing voice of the K751 Motor 259 deeply reassuring. In fact, I'm often moved to tears when she says, You've reached your destination, slipping the car into neutral, sobbing and asking myself, have I? Have I, K751 Motor 259? Have I? Have I? Anyway, we took the sat-nav and hopped into the car, and three minutes later we arrived. But as we pulled up in the micro, some youths were stood outside loitering. 
They were probably in their mid-thirties, and probably a couple, and probably waiting for a bus, but you can't take any chances. I told Sean to wait in the car, and that I'd go and get the food, which suited him, because he's very lazy, um, and it suited me, because, of course, I had a knife, so I had protection. You bloody are lazy, dear. Well, you, you can look at me all you want through the wi- mouthing off like that through the window. But you bloody... I'm not, I'm not doing this over here. I'm not doing... I forbid it. I forbid it. But, would you, well, who cleans the arga? Tell me that. Who cleans the arga? 83 years of age. And you have me twice a week on my knees up to my elbows and not in a sexy way. Deep in my greasy arga. It's a bloody disgrace. So, anyway, um, sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I agreed to go. I popped my hip back in, and then I popped into the restaurant, uh, which was an experience, because unlike Sean, I'd never set foot in a McDonald's in my life. I once found myself in a wimpy in Sitster 2, but uh, that was with Danny DeVito, and to be fair to us, we did think it was a brothel. So I go into the McDonald's, anyway, there I am, uh, and I move through the wild, panting, chomping kids and the parents who look like they'd rather be dead than spend another minute with their own children, winding my way to the counter where I'm greeted by a teenager who says, What can I get you, sir? Uh, he obviously recognised me from my career, and I thought it was a nice touch to give me my official title. Of course, he may have also clocked my actual medallion knighthood, which I wear at all times, including at night on my pyjamas, and uh, naked in the shower pinned to my panic-button lanyard. In fact, I have on occasion awoken in the night, complaining of chest pains, thinking I'm having a heart attack, only to find the pins come loose in the middle, affording me a makeshift nipple piercing. So, I said to the footballer, anyway, um, I'd like two medium-rare hamburgers, please and half a bottle of Beaujolais. Uh, the teenager stifles his laughter and tells me they don't do Beaujolais, uh, to which I say, well, that's fine. I'll have a Shiraz, if, if that's easier, to which he once again smiles and says, no, you don't understand, to which I cut him off and say, Rioja is fine. The boy then cuts me off without a hint of apology. We don't do red wine. A little disgruntled, I tell him that a bottle of Zinfandel blush will not come amiss, and before you know it, the manager is front of me telling me that they don't do wine and that could I put the knife away because I'm scaring the children. Well, I mean, I was taken aback. Literally, two of the staff grabbed me and shifted me further away from the counter. Anyway, once I took the requisite three and a half minutes I'd been given to calm down, uh, they were ready to take my order again. I apologised, and I informed them that I was perhaps a little too overwrought because we were on our schedule. We were booked into London Zoo that afternoon, and if we didn't miss the rain, then we would likely not to get to see the lions, and I wanted to see the lions, preferably one of those big ones. Uh, the manager understood, or pretended like he did, and asked me what I would like. I said, can I please have two burgers? He said, do you want it as a meal? I said, of course. I'm not going to zhuzh it with all-purpose spray and wipe my argo with it. What on earth are you talking about, man? So he says, well, you can have it on your own, or you can have it as a meal. On its own, it's £4.59. pence." I said, go on. He said, for an extra 30 pence, you can have it with chips. I said, I don't want chips that are only worth 30 pence. He said, no, they're the same chips on the menu that if you buy them on their own, they would cost you two pounds and ten pence. I said, I don't understand. He said, it's a meal deal. I said, go on. 
He said the chips are part of the meal deal where the price is reduced if you buy them with the burger. Well, you could have blown me over with a feather. I said, you mean to tell me that though those items would be seven pounds and sixty-nine pence should I choose to purchase them together, the good people of McDonald's will reduce my overall cost by one pounds and eighty pence, or two halfpennies and five guineas in old money. I said, I don't believe you. How on earth do you people make any money? Giving so much away, he assured me it was true, and proved it by pressing his big fingers into the till to ring up the price and show me. And tickle my balls, there it was, in a sort of digital green, four pounds and eighty-nine pence, or two half-crowns and a tuppenny nudger. Well, you could have blown me over with the feather. I said to him, well, sign me up, Dolly. I'll have two burgers and two chips, and take my money now before you change your mind. He said it was the company, not him, who set the meal deals and prices, and that it was standard. I said, of course it is. I gave him a, a wink and a nudge, and when he turned, I pinched him on his asshole. I said, we all used to do it back in the army days. A couple of ting-wongles for a jubber and a glilden husband. We were all at it. Good for you, I said. So, anyway, there, I'm stood there, and I'm counting out all my five peas onto the counter, when the man says, what drink would you like? I said, I thought you didn't do a wine. He said, well, we don't, but we do do other drinks. Well, I said, what sort? And uh, he said, soft drinks. I said, what, like a mixer? No, darling, I only drink tonic with gin, so I'll pass. So he says, Fanta, to which I replied, no, my name's Holworth, but you can call Mrs. Smooth. I dropped the Felix Doe at informal occasions. He said, no. <laughs> Fanta is an orange fizzy soft drink. Well, you could have blown me over with a feather. I said orange, fizzy, soft, drink. Butter my ass! that sounds lovely. I'll have two. How much extra will that be? And he said, no, it's free with the meal deal. <laughs> you could have blown me over with a feather. Free, free, free. Free, I started saying it so frankly, and in such a high-pitched voice, I sounded like a lorry reversing. Please explain, I said, and I should admit here that I was getting even a touch scared by it all. He said, the meal is a drink, chips and a burger. I said, that's it. I've had enough. I know a Daily Mail sting when I see one. Or are you like one of those set-up shows that dear Jeremy Beadle used to do? Oh, Jeremy, losing him was a dagger to the heart. Anyway, I said, look, level with me. OK, the drink on its own is what? He said, £1.90. I said, five guineas, sure. So explain to me how the addition of said delicious fizzy fruity fructose drink to my already generous burger and chip combo means I pay not a quarter farthing more. Tell me that, Brainiac. He says, I don't know. That's just what it is. Well, as you can imagine, I was exhausted by this time, and Sean was beeping the car horn like a madman, so I asked if I could, you know, sit down just to think it all through. And the manager said, yes, of course, and um, I was fortunate enough to have a burly man behind me who, on my instruction, helped me to get an arse cheek onto the counter and then both of my legs up. 
Of course, the manager then started fussing and saying he thought I meant on a chair and could I please get off the counter? And so I shout, Oh, I can have all the free drink and chips and burger in the land for half a crown, but I can't sit on a counter. No, that's madness. No, you're right. I'm the mad one here. Yes, I'm the mad one. The whole business had begun to cause me to become a little disorientated, if I'm honest. I'd not been so discombobulated since the local shopkeep told me that all four fingers of the humble Kit Kat were included in the one price. I mean, the mind boggles. Anyway, I got a grip of myself and I said, let's just get this straight once and for all and you tell me if I have this right. I pay you the sum of 13 shillings, two halfpennies, and a duck egg, or £9.78 in new money, and for that you will give me two buggers, two chip portions, and two drinks with absolutely no catch. And he said, yes. And with that, I collapsed, out cold, fainting into the arms of the greasy fingers of council-housed children. I was rushed to hospital and treated for shock, understandably so. When I awoke, Sean was at the bed, and the MacDonald was there in a beautiful spread, a deluxe paint palette of yellows, browns, and dark reds. The ketchup. I devoured the food, and can attest it was as delicious as the many adverts suggest, though it doesn't quite look the same. I must write to them about that. I said to Sean, I'm not sure what happened. I collapsed, I suppose. I just couldn't believe they would be so kind. Why would this company be so kind? They must be running at a continual loss providing this type of humanitarian altruism to the good people of the globe. And as I chomped on my last chip, and slurped the last bit of delicious Fanta, Sean said, and we didn't have to pay for this even. They gave it to us for free after one of the very old cleaners recognised you from Emmerdale Farm in the 80s. Well, I have no embarrassment in telling you, listener. I went into immediate cardiac arrest, quite literally. I only got out two days ago. I was in a coma for four days. The generosity is astounding. So I'm glad I've taken up nearly ten minutes with this introduction, because I want to pay tribute to those that run the charity that is McDonald's food. God bless you, and all who sail in you. Anyway, that was my week. <laughs> How was yours? <laughs> Don't answer, I can't hear you. On with the show! It's probably best we start with the definitive definition of directing in order to properly establish what we mean when we refer to the term, especially as it so often encompasses so much. Indeed, this is evidenced in the myriad of sycophantic descriptions I have found online and in real books in modest preparation for this ear lecture. I have to say, I find the majority of them somewhat laughable. I've certainly never known a director give insights into character, as it says in one book, or, or work with the actors to bring the story to life on the stage. <laughs> Not unless by work with, it means annoy, and by bring the story to life, it means change the story that's been carefully constructed by the writer into something that will make the director look good at the behest of every single other person involved, including the writer, actor, choreographer, musical director, producer, theatre, manager and man of no fixed abode who lives in the doorway of the theatre. Now, for the sake of clarity, I have produced my own definition here, and it reads as thus. Direction. 
the art of telling the actors where to stand in the lighting designer's lighting, telling the crew where to put the set designer's set, and telling the producer, audience and awards committee how and why they're responsible for everything good and how the stubborn writer is responsible for everything bad. I think that's fair. And so directors, they really are the limp-wristed, flouncy, scarf-wearing lovies that deliver the direction. And whilst I've found most of them to be bearable, professionally, outside of the business, they are almost universally insufferable and can be sorted into three categories, as type 1, drunks, type 2, obsessives, and 3, drunk obsessives. But more on that later. The origins of directing are rather like Johnny Depp's past relationships, hard to decipher, lacking credible witnesses, and often involving the repression of women. But the little we do know of them makes for fascinating reading. The first director can be traced back to ancient Greece, and is referred to in the playbills and programmes of the time as Plonkticus. According to historians, Plonkticus was an impoverished beggarman who slept in the doorway outside the rehearsal rooms, he was often drunk, type 1, and would shout things through the window as the actors rehearsed. The actors first thought he was a nuisance, but soon realised his mad ravings were on to something. After inviting him in for an official paid role, he accepted and led the company first into a repertoire season, and then soon into the ground through financial ruin. Of course he did. His shoes were covered in piss, and he couldn't spell his own name. Regardless of his indiscretions, he is still the first known example of an annoying person standing to the side of a group of actors whilst they're trying to get on, shouting at them as to what he thinks they should be doing. A director. He is also credited with asking actors to perform nude, especially after a double brandy and coke. Never one to be left out, Plonkticus often directed in the nude himself, and in the writings of the time is often described as having a, quote, erection as big as Orion's belt, unquote. What a lovely thought. I'm just taking some time to think about that. Orion's belt, you say? <laughs> what a lovely thought. Directing, from this point, became so popular that all the eligible men of the land would take to directing so much you'd find people bartering on the street just to be picked up by a local theatrical company. Uh, you'd be very likely to find any Tomity, Dickus or Harriacus standing on street corners shouting at people to run for the bus with more conviction or walk their dog like they mean it or um, cry, just cry, just fucking cry. Uh, good. Better. Over time, it got too much, though, and society turned. By the time we get to ancient Rome, the reputation of directors is in tatters. What followed, a rich tradition, was a bloody period whereby babies who looked at all like they might turn into directors were separated from their mother at birth, who, in kind, were told they would be rehomed to rich families and aristocrats. In truth, their heads were bludgeoned in the next room, where the parents could clearly hear and they were made into lion food slurry called Bubba Chowder, which there was a great demand for at the Colosseum. A lot of shit goes on in the profession over a long time, and because I was telling my very important and very interesting story about McDonald's, honestly, saints, the lot of them, we'll need to fast-forward this bit for time. 
from Rome, we move on. And to <laughs> known as the medieval period. <laughs> Intricate finger and toe work. I was war, death, destruction, no mercy. Thus, Peppa Pig was spawned. It brings us to the present day. You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Next up, we'll be delving in greater detail into the present day, where our search for what makes direction direction, and what makes directing direction, and what makes a director a director, all essentially the same thing, continues. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. What's that, Daisy? You want to tell the good people about what your lovely big others have to offer? Well, give me a little circle and I'll be able to tell them what it's all about. Ah, that's lovely. Hello there, I'm Farmer Giles, and Daisy is my cow, and every year she produces 10,000 gallons of pure white fresh bag from her plumptious teats. That's bag. B-A-G-H. It's a good source of protein. It's a great source of calcium. There might be absolutely no scientific requirement for humans to drink cow's bag, but that's hardly the point. There's no scientific requirement to clean a toilet, but you still do it. Well, I don't. All right, then. But I do drink bag. Buy Farmer Giles bag now in all good supermarkets, and the bad ones too. Farmer Giles bag, because baby animal growth hormone never tasted so good. Bag. Farmer Giles sponsors talk in theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. In 2016, Ken Branagh, during rehearsals for his season at the Galaxy Theatre, pulled me under the piano in the rehearsal room and whispered to me with the voice of a child that he didn't know what he was doing and could I get him out of there as quickly as possible. Conversely, on the set of Alfred Hitchcock's ill-fated sequel to The Birds, The Fish, the rotund director pulled me up by my collar, sat me on his belly and told me that he was a god and whatever he touched turned to gold. Both scenarios exemplify beautifully, in my humble opinion, the difference between those who direct on stage and uh, those who direct on the screen. This is, of course, less about general types. Uh, We know from earlier that directors are like diabetics. They're either type 1, the self-inflicted one, type 2, the psychosomatic one, or type 3, the, ooh, look at me, everyone, I've got a rare one, one. No, this is about the method that works within these types, and very strange some of them are too. On Alfred Hitchcock, I'd have to say he was one of the finest directors I've ever worked with. He was a tremendous wit, apart from anything else. When he and I used to share a taxi with Orson Welles to the set of The Fish, we'd spend the whole journey not able to breathe. (laughs) And not just because their bellies were so big I was practically squashed up against the window. 
uh, my stomach was up by my lungs and the circulation to my legs was, was being cut off. Um, but because, actually, they were very, very funny. I can't repeat many of Hitchcock's jokes. Like most white men of a certain age living in that age, they'd be viewed now as a little off-colour. Colour being the apt word, actually. The genius of the man was in his direction, though. I remember when we were doing the river scene, I played a young father who was desperately trying to escape a school of salmon, holding my children and running up the stream. Uh, and in order to work the salmon up, Alfred took his shirt off and started to gently play with his own nipples. We all wondered what on earth was going on, but uh, by God, you should have seen the change in them. He'd circle them, tweak them, flick them, the nipples I mean, not the salmon, uh, and the fish would start leaping out of the water, going wild, even screaming, which um, which I've never heard a fish do. I used to live next to a fishmonger as a boy, and I've seen them pulled from the murky waters of Coventry and, and gutted there in front of my eyes, and even then, I've never heard one even yelp, let alone scream, but here they were, screaming, and before you know it, I had no choice but to run, uh, and I did. I ran for my life up that stream, and we did it in one take. And uh, never having worked with him before, the genius of the man was born. Of course, all those fish sadly had to be clobbered. He'd worked them up into such a frenzy, they just could not be subdued. His nipples were like a drug to them. Fish nip, uh, quite literally. Like catnip, you understand, except instead of cats on a herbal drug, it was fish intoxicated by Hitchcock's nipply. That's the plural for nipples. The effect of it was lessened, of course, when I heard he'd often used this tactic. In fact, Peter Sellers told me that as Hitch got older, it became a sort of crutch for him. On his last shoot, he had his shirt off the whole time, 8am to 8pm, and if ever an actor asked a question or a big decision had to be made, he'd just begin gently tweaking until the personal group were disorientated and he could slip out in his wheelchair and delegate to someone else. Many directors get like that. John Barton, toward the end, was similar. I know I shouldn't use that term with him towards the end, because, strictly speaking, he's, he's not dead, but uh, he's bloody close, so I think it's justified. So, you see, the screen director's method is driven by arrogance, whereas on the other hand, of course, as with Branner, the stage director's method is driven by his own anxiety and neuroses, and often centres around making the auteur feel as if he is central to the proceedings. In other words, the whole business is more about the director than it is about anything else, and actors are meant to be aware of this and feed it if they want to get anywhere, both inside and outside. Outside the rehearsal room. This might mean saying hello more than once, nodding continually when the director's talking so he's constantly aware that you think what he's saying is good and worthy, and on occasion bending over and kissing his ring. Of course, if he isn't married, then just kissing the finger where the ring would be can also be sufficient. The piano story, by the way, is absolutely true and is a very standard example of what we call in the industry a branicdote. Stories which invariably start with Branagh confiding in an actor or a stage manager that he has no idea what he's doing, but which end with him being offered another million pound directing job and several awards. Like the lopping off of the head of the Greek demon Hydra. When Branner is found out, he isn't exposed and made vulnerable, his admittance of incompetency being a detriment. In fact, his luck 
and opportunities double, and his reputation is made stronger. The legendary example of this is when in 1999, Branner took his entire cast of Marlowe's Dr. Faustus up onto the roof of where they were rehearsing, called all the media, and told them he had taken them hostage. He told the cast as he held them, and the media, and the police below, that he was a truly dreadful director who didn't know what he was doing, and his terms of release were that they, in his words, let me go. His act, however, was taken to self-deprecation, and after being taught down, he was taken to a room where the Queen was waiting to give him a knighthood, and the Society of London Theatre gave him a five-year residence at the Palace Theatre. He was given both a blank contract and a blank cheque. The press release read, Kenneth Branagh is a seminal director of not just his, but a great many generations, and we are thrilled to give him as much money and as much of the theatre as he would wish to continue his great work. This gentle coaxing and coercion is the method of the theatrical stage director, and students listening should get used to it. Next time you're working with a stage director, make sure you make it clear you respect them and you like them, whatever they protest, as in they don't want to do it, or they're crying uncontrollably, or even going as far as to carve out I don't know what direction even is into their chest with their director's knife, as Branner has done several times. Let them know that they're exactly where they're meant to be, and that nothing is going to change that. Branner, incidentally, if you are listening, I respect you, I like you, and can I have my knife back, please? So, what have we done? Well, we've said we've defined the types of director, we've looked at its origins, we've discussed the difference in the methods of stage and screen directors, and I've had a small orgasm during the sponsor break when Sean informed me that the McDonald's also do something called a McFlurry, which is ice cream with a chocolate topping, and for only 99 pence. You really, 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 really could have blown me over with a fucking feather. No, 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 no. The only thing left for me to do is to give cry and praise to the most memorable of directors and highlight why we must all stand up and take note of them and their work. I suppose the three directors who spring immediately to mind as being the most memorable for me are the great Peter Brook, the great Mel Brooks and the lady who directed The Hurt Locker. Peter Brook for his exquisite stage work, most notably his RSC Midsummer Night's Dream, which he staged in a cardboard box with the side cut out of it, each part being played by the costumed fingers of two actors' hands. Melly Brook for his screen work, which is just... Uh, oh, Melly, it's just side-splittingly funny. I mean, <laughs> have you seen Blazing Saddles? I mean, I laughed so much when I first saw that, I shit myself. I mean it. I pooped everywhere. The cinema staff were furious, but I just rolled around in it, laughing and laughing and laughing, like a madman. It was frightening. And finally, of course, the lady from the Hurt Locker, because of her tremendous set of pins. I caught a glimpse of her lovely legs at the 2014 Pride of Britain Awards, and I've never forgotten them. I sidled up to her in the buffet queue, actually, and I said, Congratulations, madam. And she said, You enjoyed the film? And I said, No, I, I haven't seen it, to be honest. It's not my thing. Uh, but I must congratulate you, or, or your parents, rather, on what are the best pair of lady legs I've seen in many a year. 
Uh, she looked bemused, and her security detail reached for their guns. At least I think they were security. They may have been promotional models for her film. Anyway, uh, I got the message and uh, dipped with reverence, getting an opportunistic cheeky sniff of her legs as I ascended to leave. Lavender. What class? Now these directors, they are all memorable, don't get me wrong! But these aside, I must of course single out one director who I think is a pioneer in the field and who I have learnt the most from in my long and extremely distinguished career. And I am, of course, referring to Oswald Jundermate, the famed director of stage, screen and supermarket car parks. Oswald's unusual appearance, unusual voice and unusual methods meant he turned heads at any rehearsal room, mostly away from him in disgust. But he was, as they say, one of a generation, and regardless of his macabre nature... He got results. He got things done. He was a doer. He'd say things like, Oh, you're having a problem with that line? I'm going to put a peg on your tongue. Now try harder. He'd say, Oh, you're struggling with the choreography. Tie this rope around your legs and try harder. Oh, you're late for rehearsals. Have this steaming hot coffee on your face and take the whole day for yourself down the hospital. He got results. Brian Cranston of Breaking Bad fame told me that it was Oswald who had been his inspiration for the character of Walter White. Indeed, Oswald was balding and had both terminal cancer and a dreadful meth habit. Oswald, though, wouldn't have been seen dead in the Arizonian check shirts and jeans of Walter. Instead, Oswald wore a short black cape which covered only one shoulder, like in the Elizabethan age, and always held a cane which he would direct with slash bop homeless people on the head with as he walked past them. I worked with Oswald on three productions, all Hamlet. We continually returned to it together, finding something different in it every single time. In the first production, we barely did it at all, miming the lines and replacing the third act with the dance. The second time we did it, I played all the other parts and the 30-strong cast all played the various sides of Hamlet's mind. And the third time we did it, we all went to lunch and Dawn French read it like a five-year-old under a single light bulb, our meal being projected live on the screen behind her. It was more than avant-garde. It, it, was, it was complete madness. And yet, in the Times, five stars. In the Guardian, five stars. In the Horse and Hound, five stars. And indeed, it won every category at the Olivier Awards that year, including the Best Newcomer Award and the In Memoriam Award. I don't think I've ever been more proud of a production in my life. Sadly, we lost Oswald last year. Literally, Sean and I took him to Disneyland Palace and we were watching the log flume and in my defence it was fascinating and I turned around and he was gone. I reported it to the French police but they said most likely he'd been sex trafficked out of the country and I said, a 70-year-old director abducted, sex trafficked out of the country? And they said, well, you know, you would be surprised. Some of these people apparently have very, very niche tastes and that was that. Unfortunately, we've had no news from them since. But that doesn't negate the fact that wherever he is, whether he's in a very compromising situation indeed, maybe tied to a bed, I don't know, being all manner of things happening to the man, 
uh, he was a terrific director, and and that is what really really matters. I mean, of course, it matters if he's being if he's being assaulted night and day and, and tied tied to a, a a bed, assaulted by many men. Maybe I I don't know. Um, but what what really matters is that is that he was a director, uh, first and foremost, and did a lot of good. Uh, and of course, in his new occupation, he may be doing a lot of good for those those people that are doing things to him that are, that are bad men, nevertheless. But I'm just saying he might be getting some enjoyment out of it, possibly. I don't know. I don't know the situation. Anyway, it's all unfortunate. Um, and and I will miss him. And maybe that's that's how we should end it. In fact, that is a perfect note to end on. Actually, no, I, I do prefer middle C. That's a better note to end on. Let, let, let's have that note instead. And so to correspondence. This week, Faith Lipstitch, six from Ipswich, writes in with a very curious question indeed. Hello, Faith. She writes, Dear Mr Smooth, My name is Faith Hope Louise Sarah Jane Lipstitch. I'm six and from Ipswich in Suffolk, England. I currently attend the Sacred Heart Regina All-Girls Primary School, where amongst my studies of philosophy, ethics, metaphysics, astrology and war, I'm also training to be a stage and screen director. The hours are lengthy, and whilst I do 20 minutes of study on each subject a day, pre-luncheon, post-luncheon or sup, I have four hours on my directing training. According to Sartre, it is better to die on one's feet than to live on one's knees. Spoken like a man who's never worn a kitten heel a day in his life, right? Ha ha ha. But I do find some solace in his words, Holworth, and I'm minded to agree. Especially when considering my teacher and her expertise, or lack thereof. After four years of training, we are still yet to direct an actor or a scene, and I feel as though I'm being held back. I've told Mother, but she insists that most children are made to wait until they're at least eight before they are emboldened and encouraged to try their powers and direct with abandon. This I find hard to compass, Holworth. Am I really destined to have to wait until I'm almost a decade old before I take the lead on a feature film? Holworth, I need your counsel. What would you do to get started? How should I direct? Your humble and obedient student, Faith Lipstitch, six years of age, from Ipswich. Oh, oh, Faith. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, well, in the words of George Michael, you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith. You've got to have faith, faith, faith. You've got to have faith, a faith, a faith. Ah. A baby! No, you've got to have faith. Uh, You've got to have uh, uh, faith. Um, But listen, Faith Lipswich, six from Ipswich, what can I say to you? Firstly, I must thank you and congratulate you on the drawing you enclose for me with the letter. This isn't just the first drawing of the London Palladium I've ever received. It's intricate knowledge of the measurements, back channels, tunnels, fixtures and fissings are so detailed I'm minded to send it to the Secret Service as evidence of some sort of dark plot. (laughs) And I'm not joking either. It's a serious piece of terroristic documentation. And if you don't succeed in becoming a director of faith, then I might suggest either a military service or indeed a life of crime, which I think genuinely you would be a breath of fresh air in. Now, on to your question. How to make such a situation better? 
Um, well, can I suggest, first of all, that you rid yourself of this dreadful teacher? She sounds a little overwhelmed by the task at hand, and though you leave out her age, her circumstance, nearly every detail about her, in fact, I'm inclined to think she's probably a little menopausal and is taking it out on her students, which isn't uncommon. And before people write in and say that's sexist, I'm afraid it can't be, because men don't have menopauses, okay? Show me a scientist who can prove men have menopauses, and then perhaps I can draw a better comparison. Otherwise, women get moody because the body changes, okay? Get used to it, baby. So, what you need to do, Faith, is to rid this menopausal divorcee from your training and have your mother and father escort her from the building, uh, by force, if necessary. And that might be required, actually. Often, menopause causes hormonal imbalances, which can increase testosterone, making these women not just more aggressive, but fatally strong. Uh, they often use the example of when somebody's trapped under a car and a menopausal woman is walking pie, she's more likely to be able to lift the car than a man. Uh, which is true, except that they leave out the fact that they're mostly so grumpy and moody, they're actually more likely to walk past and ignore it on purpose altogether. Uh, leaving the child, of course, uh, for dead. Conversely, I have seen a menopausal grumpy gut strangle a large bird of prey, but uh, that was for a dare, Faith, so I don't think that counts. Too directing! Faith, you can direct anywhere, my love. But I think your mother is right that you should start small and work your way up. Not just in size, but also in the, in the object of your directions. Try starting by directing inanimate objects, for instance, before you work up to a fully grown actor. As you know, I've been directing for years, and when I trained with Stanley Kubrick, we started by directing a chair. We'd place a chair into different positions and circle it, asking if it could say a line in a different way, or kiss another chair a different way, or make us a cup of tea. Uh, of course, it didn't, it didn't do anything. It, it was a chair. But the discipline learnt stayed with me for a long time. Mostly until we directed with humans, then I, I forgot it. It was pointless. It, it was a chair. Just a box down a chair. If, if you do suffer from telekinesis, though, I wouldn't attempt this method, as you, as you can have quite frightening results, uh, even with a chair. A box down a chair. Once you feel you have accomplished some fundamentals of directing objects, you may move then on to animals and babies, uh, mostly shoving them around, you know, pushing and pulling them. And this is when you can move it outside of the home, of course. Uh, perhaps take yourself down the park and accost a child who you felt didn't really throw themselves down the slide in any meaningful way. You can grab them, tell them you didn't believe that, and drag them up to the top again and sort of throw them down and repeat the process and, until you believe it. Uh, then move on. Uh, if any parents give you grief, then explain your training, and that should placate them. And of course, if it doesn't, then you just have your mother and father escort them from the park. Once you've cleared the park for a good week, you can then move on to adults, I'd say. Now, once you get into the hustle room, you might find you come up against a bit of flack from the cast. You'll make your way in, there will be some gasps, perhaps somebody will drop their script, their mouths will be agape. But don't you take any notice. It might be somewhat new to them, but it's worthy, and they'll have to just get used to being directed by a female. Times are changing, Faith. I hope that helps. Faith Lipstitch, six from a Ipswich. To you I say, good day. Well, that's all we have time for today. Join me next time. We'll be swimming in the artistic merits of theatrical design, and I'll be asking the all-important questions. Can a single llama be the entire set of a play? Why do we call clothes costumes when they're just clothes, aren't they? And 
who is responsible for making the props? This is especially important to know, because you'll often need to bollock that person. You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about theatre. And so, until next time, to you I say, good day. <laughs> <laughs>